Jeremy, I was thinking, you mentioned that proverb, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I was just going to make a grammatical observation there that the word finds is a verb. <laughs> It'll dawn on a few of you about an hour from now. <laughs> wow. These past eight days have been some difficult days for the body here. We have conducted three funeral services in the last eight days. And so we have been deeply involved with a number of families, ministering to them in the midst of a profound grief. Grief I don't think that anyone can understand until they go through a similar circumstance themselves. It is exceedingly difficult. In the process of doing that, my mind was drawn to just think about the importance of a life well lived. Just as you sort of evaluate yourself, your life, how will it be all summed up? What will people say at your funeral? How will your life be summarized? In the year 1904, William Borden, member of the Borden Dairy family, finished high school in Chicago and coming from a wealthy family, he was giving a, given a world cruise as a graduation present. While traveling throughout the Far East, William Borden became heavily burdened for the lost. So after returning home from his cruise, he spent the next seven years at Princeton University. He spent his first four in his undergraduate work and then immediately went on to seminary there at Princeton and completed his seminary studies in three more years. While there at Princeton, he penned these words in the back of his Bible. No reserves, he wrote. No reserves. His family pleaded with him as he was coming upon graduation date to come back to the family business and to take control of it. It was suffering financially at that time. But he insisted that God's call to the mission field had priority in his life. So upon graduation from seminary, he disposed of all of his personal fortune. And he wrote in the back of his Bible two more words. No retreat. No retreat. While on his way to China to witness to Muslims, he contracted cerebral meningitis in Egypt and he died within a month, never having reached China, the place of his mission endeavors. After his death, someone was looking through his Bible and they discovered these final words penned there in the back of the Bible, no regrets. No regrets. What enables a man who knows he is dying, dying young, and dying before he's able to even not just accomplish what he wants to do with his life, but, but really even to begin the task of what it is he wants to do, what is it that enables such a person to write in their Bible, No regrets. I've got no regrets. 
Would you like to have a life like that? Would you like to live a life of no regrets? Would you like to know for certain that whatever happens to you, good or bad, at the end of your life, when you look back over it, whether it be long or short, that you could say with all of your heart, I've got no regrets. None. No regrets. Well, this morning, the Word of God is going to equip us to be able to do just that. If you'll open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Page 1192, if you're using a pew Bible. Second Timothy is Paul's final correspondence. Penned sometime around A.D. 67, he addressed this letter to his young son in the faith, Timothy. It is Paul's last recorded correspondence. Paul was sitting in a Roman prison cell at this time in his life, and he was awaiting execution. This letter is poignant, and this letter is powerful. It is his last will and testament, the last words we have from this great missionary church-planting apostle. And as we read this letter, it really focuses our attention on those things that are truly important in life. Knowing that you're dying sort of has a way of focusing you. Other things just aren't quite so important anymore. So we have the ability here, by the grace of God, to eavesdrop on this final correspondence. I'm going to take the reading beginning in chapter 4 at verse 1. I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth And will turn aside to myths. But you. Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
We're going to focus our thoughts this morning on verses 6, 7, and 8. And as we look at those verses, we will find three foundational requirements for Christian living. Three foundational requirements for Christian living so that when we come to the end of our lives, we'll have no regrets. No regrets. Beloved, if we want to finish without regrets, we must first recognize our mortality. It all begins there, verse 6. We must recognize our mortality. Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. It's interesting here. He uses a pair of metaphors to describe his anticipated death. One of them, the drink offering or the libation. The other, a departure. Actually, all through this section, verse 7 as well, Paul uses a series of metaphors there. He's, he's very reflective in this text. He's looking back at his life. He's looking forward and knowing that the end is soon to come. And, and it's just very personal, as I said before, very poignant as he expresses himself here. But it's also exceedingly clear. He says, I am being poured out as a drink offering, a libation. This is a reference to the Old Testament ritual. It's drawn from the Jewish liturgical custom of pouring out a, a drink offering or a, or a vessel of wine at the base of the altar every morning before the daily sacrifice. It was just something that was very common, very standard, very understandable to his readers. It was the drink offering, and it was poured at the base of the altar, and it, and it began the day for the nation of Israel. Paul says, I am being poured out like that drink offering. It's interesting as well here, just grammatically how he constructs this. There's a contrast here. He's, he's emphatic in verse 6 about this. Literally, he says, for as for me... Timothy, he's he's comparing, he's contrasting himself to Timothy. He finished speaking to Timothy in verse five. Timothy, this is what you must do. You must be sober. You must endure hardship. You must do the work of an evangelist. You must fulfill your ministry, Timothy. I've passed the baton on to you, Timothy, for as for me now, my days are coming to a close. That's what he's communicating here. He uses a present tense of the verb just to express the reality for him that the process has already begun. It's as if the wine is being poured already at the base of the altar. It's his life. It's, it's being poured out now. It won't be long. He's been tried already in a Roman court. He's been convicted of the capital crime of being a Christian. And thus seditious and a threat to imperial Rome. Because of his Roman citizenship, he will not be crucified like the others. He will fall to the executioner's blade. But he will be martyred for his faith, and he knows this to be true. Nero's mad rampage is in full, 
in full expression at this time. Christians are being dipped in pitch and burned to light Nero's gardens. Paul knows for sure that his time is at hand. It's as if he himself is part of this sacrifice, this preliminary pouring out. He's conscious here he's dying in God's service. He's very much aware of that. He sees his own lifeblood as, as being poured out, as, you, as it were, at the base of the altar here. I am being poured out, Timothy. I'm already being poured out. The time of my departure, he says, verse 6, has come. Time. Kairos in the Greek. It means a season a time, an hour, or, or, or an epoch. He's not talking about a specific. He's not saying tomorrow at 2 o'clock, Timothy, is my date with the executioner. He's not that precise. He's just saying that it's upon me. The season is upon me, Timothy. The epoch of time, not the chronology of it all. It's not that I have that exact date with the executioner. It's just I know that it's here. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be a few more days, it could be a few more months. We're not sure. Paul himself is not sure. In fact, he says just a little bit later, look down at verse 13. When you come, Timothy, he wants Timothy to come. He wants to see his beloved son in the faith one more time. He says, Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Down to verse 21. Make every effort, Timothy, to come before winter. It's cold here in Rome. You just get this picture of this old man whose life is, has come to an end. He thinks perhaps there'll be enough time for Timothy to get there. He hopes that to be true. And Timothy, when you come, bring my precious books. I want to read the Word of God again. Bring my cloak, Timothy. Cold. The time of my departure is at hand. This word departure is a very interesting word. It speaks metaphorically of a ship weighing anchor, drawing up its anchor now to leave port. It speaks of a soldier or a traveler breaking camp, pulling up the tent stakes, rolling up the tent and moving on. It's not going to be much longer now, Timothy. It's a euphemism for death. It became that way in later Greek usage. Carried with it for the Christian the idea that the deceased is going home. Been on a long voyage now and I'm going home. Been away a long time. I'm going home. We know for the believer to depart this life, right? To absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul knows where he's going. He knows where he's going. He's going to fall asleep in Jesus. He's going where to the Philippians years earlier, he said, was gain for me, right? To live is Christ and to die is gain. Gain. There's not sadness in the fact that he's dying. Don't, don't misunderstand that. That's not the sadness. The sadness is for Timothy, who will be left behind for sure. It's come, Timothy. 
The time, verse 6, the time of my departure has come. It's here. It was once distant, perhaps, but, but it's drawn near. It's now imminent. Timothy, it hangs over me. It's like the clouds of death. They've come. They're now hovering over me. Folks, nobody lives forever. Nobody lives forever. Whether God in His grace grants you three score and ten, or if by force of strength, four score, praise Him. It may also be in His inscrutable wisdom that He sets the clock of your life much shorter than that. Nobody knows. We have no promise beyond today. We do not know what tomorrow brings. There's no endless supply of tomorrows, folks. No endless supply. Live in the here and now. Don't always say, well, tomorrow we'll do this. Someday we'll do that. Always live in the future and wishing the present away. Can't help but think of the fifth chapter of the book of Genesis. There in the fifth chapter of the book of Genesis, where you encounter that first genealogy, the line of Seth. It takes, it takes the line of the godly from Adam's son Seth all the way through Noah. But as we read through that genealogy there in Genesis chapter 5, eight times the refrain is struck, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Oh, they had longevity of life, to be sure. Those antediluvian patriarchs, some of them living up into the 900 years. But at the end of it all, and he died. There is no avoiding our appointment with death. It is there. It's unavoidable. It is this sense of mortality that brings a sense of urgency to our lives today. It's when we live in the light of the reality that there are no promises about tomorrow that gives us a sense of urgency for today. Oh, I can do it manana if there is a manana, but if there's not, I better do it today. Beloved, we are all in the process of becoming who we will be. Our lives, our character, they're, they're formed incrementally, day by day, decision by decision. If you want to be a good and godly man, gentlemen, then it, it begins in the decisions today. It's not out there someday. I'll, I'll get to it someday. You, you may not have it someday. It's today. It's now. One small step at a time. We're going to end our lives with no regrets. You know, the end of it all, you... Probably we'll have opportunity to talk to a family members or maybe a pastor. They'll ask you, 
Do you have any regrets? Do you want to be able to answer them truthfully? And you need to focus. You need to focus your lives. I need to focus my life. I need to remember the reality that I am but flesh and blood. I have no promises beyond this very moment. Don't delay. Do not delay. If you need to change something, change it now. Beloved, if you're involved in some activity that runs contrary to the will of God, and you know if you are, then put an end to it. Put an end to it. Take an axe to the root and hack this thing down. Or maybe you're here this morning and your spiritual future is a great big question mark. You have no idea. Oh, you've got some vague knowledge of Christ. Maybe you've got a reasonably well-developed knowledge of Christ, but it's still up here, it's out there, it's not personal, it's not real. You've got no promises. None. Don't delay. Don't put it off. Deal with God and let Him deal with you. The Apostle Paul says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. You want to live a life of no regrets? You need to recognize your mortality. Secondly, if we want to live a life of no regrets, we need to maintain our priority. Maintain our priority. Look at verse 7. Paul summarizes his life here in just three short statements. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Wow. This man's life, and we know about it as we read the Scriptures, we read the book of Acts, we read the epistles, we see the incredible ministry that the Lord gave this man. And he, he summarizes it all up here. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. That's my life. That's my life. Again, he does it with pictures, metaphors here. They're all drawn from the sphere of athletics. I don't know if Paul would have watched football on a Sunday afternoon or not. He didn't have to make that choice. But he was certainly well acquainted with athletics. He loved athletic metaphors. And he uses three of them here. He begins by saying, I have fought the good fight. This is drawn from the, from the, the arena of wrestling. It's drawn from a wrestling match. I fought the good fight. Paul said, I've wrestled well. The description good here, it, it doesn't imply that his efforts were good. That's not what he is saying here. It's more profound than that. What he's saying is that he involved himself in the right contest. The good fight. The, I was involved in the right wrestling matches. 
I didn't get drawn aside into other things. Remember, later we told, or earlier we told Timothy, Timothy, avoid those controversies. Those things are unproductive. Paul says, I wrestled in the right matches, picked my fights, maintained my priorities. Folks, there are many worthy causes in this world. Many, many things to become involved in. Many things to give one's life to, for sure. But there is only one gospel. And we were redeemed to proclaim it. It's as simple as that. All the other activities of life will be left this side of the grave. But it's our involvement in gospel work that goes on into eternity. This is the good fight. This is the right match. This is the place where we belong fully engaged. Not half-heartedly. Not with the leftovers after we've done all the other things. It is this place where we are to give ourselves in our entirety. If it were just about fellowship, he could save us and take us to glory, couldn't he? I mean, the fellowship is sweet here. Don't get me wrong. But it's nothing like it's going to be when you guys are all glorified and perfected. Well, me too, of course. We've got to be involved doing the right things. We've got to be in the right fight. Where the priorities are huge. They're important. Fought the good fight, he says. Secondly, I've finished the course. I've finished the course. This one is drawn from the realm of racing. could be horse racing. It could be foot races. This is a racing metaphor. It speaks here of the the course of a person's life, their, their vocation, if I can say it that way. It's used over in Acts chapter 13. It's used two places in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13. It's one. I'll just read them to you quickly. Acts 13, 25. It says, while John was completing his course, he kept saying, well, what do you suppose that I am? I am not. He is speaking of John the Baptist here. John the Baptist completing his course, his vocation, his mission in life. What was John the Baptist about? He cared about one thing, didn't he? I mean, that guy dressed kind of weird. Had that bizarre diet, you know, those like locust legs hanging out between his teeth. It's everywhere he went. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everywhere he went, that was his message. You brood of vipers. I mean, he was quite a guy. Very single-minded, very focused. He had a vocation, a, a calling of God given to him, and he pursued it relentlessly. Finished his course. Paul himself uses the same language again over in Acts chapter 20. Speaking there to the church at Ephesus, Acts 20, verse 24, summarizing his ministry there to the church. He says, but I not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. 
Paul says, I've been given, I've been given a vocation. I've been given a, a place to go and a thing to do. I'm going to do it. At the end of his life, he looks back on it all and he says, I've done it. I did it. It's significant here, by the way, that Paul doesn't claim to have won the race. I want you to notice that, verse 7. He doesn't say, I won the race. He says, I finished the course. I finished the course. The idea is that he, that he stayed on target. Luke, stay on target. He wasn't distracted. He knew where he was going and he went after it. And he pursued it relentlessly. It's a picture of endurance. That's what this is about. This is about endurance. This is endurance in the Christian life and service. This is not growing faint-hearted, dropping out. This is continuing to run the race. Hours behind the runner in front of him, the last marathoner finally entered the Olympic Stadium. By that time, the drama of the day's events was almost over and most of the spectators had gone home. This athlete's story, however, is, was still being played out. Limping into the arena, the Tanzanian runner grimaced with every step, his knee bleeding and bandaged from an earlier fall. His ragged appearance immediately caught the attention of the remaining crowd who cheered him on to the finish line. Why did he stay in the race? What made him endure his injuries all the way to the end? Why not drop out? I mean, he, they had finished hours before. This thing was well over. Well, when they asked him that question later, he replied, my country did not send me 7,000 miles away to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. To finish it. Folks, life is full of starters. There is no shortage of people who will start when the gun goes off. There is a great shortage of finishers. A great shortage of people who will stay in the race all the way to the finish line. The temptation to drop out is huge. Life comes at us. It, it brings stuff and it brings hard stuff. And we live in such a culture that, that is at a wash in, in comfort. We have access to unprecedented wealth. And the temptation is to, is to use it. To invest it in ourselves. To try to establish, oh, we'd never, we'd never speak of it this way. We're far too orthodox than that. But to establish our piece of heaven here on earth. Finished the course, Paul said. I've endured to the end. Third, I've kept the faith. 
I have kept the faith. Verse 7. This third metaphor, it speaks of the athlete's pledge to, com- to play by the rules of the contest. Before an athletic endeavor in those days, they would gather the athletes together and they would solicit from them a pledge of honor that they would compete according to the rules. The athletes would pledge that to be true. That we will, I will compete and I will compete according to the rules. What Paul's saying here essentially is that he has remained faithful. He has kept on believing the gospel. And the gospel has set the direction of his life. He has persevered in the faith. He hasn't gone outside the boundaries of the gospel. It has been that which he has followed. And he has followed it faithfully. It's a very clear picture of his purpose for life. A very clear picture had generated his priorities. His priorities have driven his activities. This man knows where he was going. And thus he can look back on his life and say, I have no regrets. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the purpose of your life? Do you know the purpose of your life? Do you know why you were created? Do you know why God brought you into this world? And why He redeemed you? Is it to live a life of relative ease? Is that why He did this? Where are you going in life? What is your purpose? If we know not where we go, how can we at the end say we've arrived? How can we ever say, I've got no regrets? Folks, we've got to know. We've got to know. And we've got to have a a biblically derived purpose. God has not, He's not like a professional quarterback with a bootleg. He's not hidden the football from us. It's clear, it's apparent, it's plain, it's in the open. The will of God is no mystery. For grace, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And we usually end right there. The apostle goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This culture is laced with distractions. Everywhere we turn. And we live in the probably the the bullseye of distractions, Southern California. There is more recreational opportunities in this part of the country, I think, than probably anywhere else. I was born and brought up in Massachusetts. You know, we used to have to look at the weather report every day to figure out what to put on. This is Southern California. I don't know the last time I worried about that I might be, you know, underdressed and cold. (laughs) It's a great place to live. I love it. But boy, can it be seductive. 
it can be so seductive. Just drawing our hearts away a little at a time. It's not that we would deny the faith. We would never, ever do that. It's just really hard to live distinctively Christian, isn't it? Or am I the only one who struggles with this? Talk to me. Is it hard? Yes, it's hard. There is a great temptation for all of us, for our neighbors when they look at us, to just assume we are a nice guy down the street. Mormons are nice guys down the street, by the way. Jehovah's Witnesses are nice guys down the street. Hindus are nice guys down the street. And on and on, you you pick it. Being a nice guy down the street is nothing. Opening our mouth to speak is everything. As long as our mouths are closed, we allow the world to define us as they want to. Wow, what a nice guy. It's when we open our mouth and speak that all of a sudden they realize that our commitments transcend this life. Maybe we're still a nice guy, but whoa, don't you talk to me about that stuff. What are you doing right now to fulfill God's purpose in your life? What are you doing right now? Not what have I done. What am I doing right now? Right now. What am I sacrificing for right now? Not what I once sacrificed for. What is it that occupies my sacrificial spirit right now? What am I denying myself and why am I doing it? Brother Jeremy stood up here and spoke to you about the infectious disease that he would like all of you to gain. I second the motion. That is a passion for the things of God. The planting of gospel preaching churches. It is God's ordained means of winning the lost. I'm going to bring a message here in a couple of weeks about church planting. And we'll make that far fuller and hopefully more apparent then. But we're serious about church planting. This brother's serious about it. We're serious about reaching the, the world with the gospel. There are, there are men and women in this congregation right now who are serious about it. They're seriously considering giving up significant careers in order to undertake difficult training and preparation to go. There are young men in this congregation right now who are talking about going to seminary. They could go somewhere else. They could make money doing something else. They're talking about a life of service in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're making sacrifices now to do it. There are young women in this congregation whose hearts beat with passion for the lost. And they are focused on going. We have a lot to be thankful for. Brother Art was sharing with the elders just the other night. A survey of 5,000 churches. I hope I get this right. 5,000 churches that support a, a group of 
a mission board that, that sends out 1,200 missionaries. Did I say that right? 5,000 churches in support of 1,200 missionaries on the foreign field. Less than 10% of those 5,000 churches has ever sent anyone themselves. Less than 10%. Beloved, out of this body, in the last 16 years, we have seen person after person be raised up by the Lord, make significant sacrifice in their life, and go forth in the service of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are more behind them. We have a lot to be excited about, a lot to be thankful for. But we can't sit on our laurels. We can't be congratulating ourselves. This summer series on things to come, this is not merely for just intellectual stimulation. Oh, it's important we know these doctrines and know them well, for sure. But it is we know that we might do. We don't know when Christ is returning. But just looking around, it sure seems to me that it can't be long. What's he going to find you doing when he gets here? We want to live a life with no regrets. We need to recognize our mortality. We need to maintain our priority. Third, we need to anticipate our destiny. Verse 8, we need to anticipate our destiny. Paul said, I've kept the faith in the future. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's saying, listen, I finished the race and it was the right one. And so now all that's left for me is to receive my reward, my crown. Stephanos, my my garland, my wreath, the coveted laurel wreath of the athletic champion, Paul says, is now mine. The future there is laid up for me, verse 8, the Stephanos, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not Paul saying, not the day of my death. That's not that day he's talking about. He's talking about another day, the great day, the day of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. He's speaking of that future eschatological day. The glorious day of Christ's appearing. Paul goes on to say that that longing and that expectation is to be the focus of every one of the children of God. He will award it to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved His appearing, loved or longed for the return of Jesus Christ. Paul says, if your eyes, beloved, are fixed on the return of Christ, if that's what's motivating you, that's what you're driving towards, that's what you're longing for, there is a great crown that awaits you. Christians are people who know that their residency here is temporary. That their citizenship is where? It's in heaven. It's in heaven. Citizenship in heaven. 
Our distinctive mark is that we are always looking for the return of Jesus Christ. One eye looking up. One eye looking up. We need to long for His appearing, not shrink back at His coming. President Jimmy Carter once reminisced about his interview with Admiral Hyman Rickover, founder of the Nuclear Navy. Jimmy Carter, as you remember, was a naval officer before he went into political life, graduate of Annapolis. Rickover used to interview every officer from Ensign on up who had volunteered and been approved to serve on a nuclear submarine. This interview was a stuff of Navy legend. A terrifying hour or two that those who suffered through it would talk about only in hushed tones for the rest of their lives. Those who had gone through the ordeal recommended that a young man choose a a few subjects that he knew a lot about and be prepared to talk to the admiral about those. That was the interview strategy. Carter chose Renaissance art, naval gunnery, and a couple of others. But after about an hour, he found himself in a cold sweat. The admiral knew more about all of those subjects than Carter ever would. As the interview wound down with Carter wondering what sort of impression he had made, Admiral Rickover asked him a question. Where did you stand in your graduating class at the academy? Sir, came the reply, proudly I finished 56th out of a class of 820. Then came another question. Did you do your best? Did you do your best? Carter was about to say, yes, sir, I did. But he caught himself and thought that would be presumptuous. And so he said instead, well, sir, sometimes I did and sometimes I didn't. So Admiral Rickover replied, you're saying that you did not do your best. Well, yes, sir, I guess that's right. As he swiveled in his chair, signaling that the interview was over, Admiral Rickover said, why not? Why not? Are you living a life of no regrets? Is that what characterizes your life? You're living a life of no regrets. In the words of Admiral Rickover, if not, why not? Why not? What prevents you? Beloved, today is the first day of the rest of your life. God is a God of second chances. Third chances, fourth, fifth, sixth. He's patient. Today's the day. Today's the day, quietly in your heart. As we close this service together, you call out to God. You ask His grace to flood you. Strengthen you. To help you to live your life for His glory. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, 
You call out to Him to save you. You beseech Him, you beg Him. And He will save. I'll be down front here at the end of the service. If you want to come and talk more about these things, I would be more than pleased to talk to you. God bless you, my brothers. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the Word of God. Thank You that it both wounds and heals. And so, our Father, may Your grace be poured out on us in abundance even now. That You would bind up the faint-hearted. That You would strengthen the weak. That You would afflict the arrogant and humble them. Lord, do Your mighty work here among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close our time together today, would you please take your hymn books and turn to number 376. 376. I have decided to follow Jesus. Let's stand together to sing.